Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. I refuse to be comforted. Tears were my meat by day, and dreams my terror by night. I felt as I had never felt before. My thoughts were all a case of knives, cutting my heart into pieces. My thoughts, which had been to me a cup of delights, were like pieces of broken glass, the piercing and cutting miseries of my pilgrimage. On the 19th of October, 1856, with thousands gathered to worship in the midst of the song service, a voice, echoed by others, began to rise of fire, fire, fire. The galleries are giving way. The place is falling. The place is falling. In the ensuing panic, a stampede and press towards the exits saw seven die and 28 seriously injured. To discuss this incident, one that profoundly shaped Charles Spurgeon's life, I'm joined by Jeff Chang, assistant professor of church history and curator of the Spurgeon Library at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as Ray Rhodes, founding pastor of Grace Community Church in Dawsonville, Georgia, and president of Nourish in the Word Ministries. Dr. Rhodes has long been a scholar of Spurgeon's life and works, including his volume, Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, a book I recommend all of our readers to grab. Uh, Fascinating work. So welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Uh, I'm here as well with Dr. Michael McMullen as well, as we talk about this event in the life of Spurgeon that profoundly mm-hmm. changed his life, ministry, and uh, ways. Jeff, would you, can we just start by kind of giving us the fuller story? I know I just briefly introduced that. Can you just talk about what happened there for our listeners? Yeah, just to give some of that backstory, you know, uh, Spurgeon arrives in London in 1854, and before long, his church is packed out, mm-hmm. uh, the New Park Street Chapel there. Uh, and so by the spring of 1856, they're beginning to look for larger venues to, to hold their services. Uh, they begin with Exeter Hall uh, there in that spring. And, and pretty soon, uh, again, Exeter Hall is packed out. More, they can't fit everybody that wants to come. Uh, and not only that, but by, by the time we get to the fall of 1856, Exeter Hall is beginning to um, just not like the setup you know, with one church <laughs> occupying that space every Sunday. Right. And so they, 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 there begins to be a hesitation to sort of lease the space to the New Park Street Chapel. And so uh, the church begins to look for a new venue, and they find the Surrey Gardens Music Hall, uh, this massive venue that seated over 10,000 people. Right. Uh, and so they scheduled their first service there uh, after a congregational meeting to, to voted to approve that venue. Uh, it was kind of a controversial venue to use because it was a secular venue. Right. It was a music hall. Uh, that held kind of concerts and, and, and operas and other things, uh, but, but it held also 10,000 people. <laughs> so, uh, so the congregation voted to approve that move, uh, and so they were scheduled to meet there on October 19th, 1856. Uh, and, and that first meeting is when that disaster happened. Yeah, so with this context, uh, a little bit, we've we're, we're got a massive gathering of people um, construction isn't exactly the same standards that we would have today with tons mm-hmm. and tons of exits. Mm-hmm. So what, what happened? Why does somebody do this? Why do we end up with this event even happening? Mm-hmm. Dr. Rhodes? Yeah. Uh, well, there's, there's lots of debate over exactly what happened. 
but it seems it was mischief makers or pocket uh, pickpockets mm. who were creating the chaos for their own purposes, of course. And uh, if if folks had left the music hall calmly and not panicked, uh, it is believed that everyone would have survived. Right. But instead, they panicked, trampled over one another. Horrific stories of that night of death. Not not you know not just death, but uh, horrific death. Uh, stories of a pregnant mother at nine months who died, and they they bring her body out and they do an emergency C-section at a building nearby, trying to save the wow. baby. Folks leaping from the balconies, hanging from the balconies, hooked on some thing. Susie would call it a black shadow of sorrow that evening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the newspapers report on this, obviously, and, and as folks thought about the event after the fact, uh, it, it was clear that it was a coordinated event. It wasn't just a, a single person crying out fire. I think had it, had it been just a single person, I think it would have largely been ignored. But it was very much coordinated. It seemed like it, it came from dozens, perhaps, perhaps mm-hmm. more, who, who shouted and, and, and sort of made the rush. They even sort of planned it at the time of Spurgeon's pastoral prayer. So had it been during a song or maybe even during his preaching, I think people would have probably ignored it. But it was during the quietness of a prayer that they gave the alarm uh, and began to cause the stampede. Um, and so uh, I think Dr. Rhodes is right. It, it was very much intentional and, and done with uh, the, the motive to cause trouble, you know, because of kind of Spurgeon's prominence in London during that time. I'm sure some of our listeners would, would want to know, did they ever catch anyone related to this? Did, were there, uh, was there actually ever anyone apprehended mm. uh, over this type of, a, of an issue? I don't believe that there was. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't read anything about that either. Yeah. Mm. So with this, uh, Dr. Rhodes, you, you said uh, in, in your work with uh, Susanna um, that there was this dark cloud that descends. And we we know that already Spurgeon, and this is a topic for another time, but Spurgeon struggled a little bit with some depression uh, in the main. So here they are gathering um, all this loss of life, all the negative publicity, all of the pieces that go along with that. And even in, in her reflections of this dark cloud, how, how does Spurgeon deal with this? How does he process this uh, pastorally, uh, even just caring for his own uh, life when when he's seeing this level of tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Well, initially at the event itself, he tries to continue the service. Some were encouraging to continue as a means of calming the crowd down. He realized that there was no uh, imminent danger from fire or anything else. But he did ultimately collapse that night. They had to carry him out. Uh, one paper reported he had died. Mm. Uh, he came home. He was inconsolable. Uh, he was rushed away to a deacon's home where he would try to recover. Susie would later join him. They just had twins a few months, a few weeks earlier than that, so she brought the children there. Uh, he wrote a letter to his mother uh, there. It's one of the most moving letters I've ever seen. And he tells his mother, uh, I'm, I'm all right, but don't, don't talk to me about the disaster. Mm-hmm. He would say something like that to his church as well. Uh, so he was uh, deeply wounded and... He never really got over it. One of his closest friends, William Williams, thought it was one of the causes of his death at 57. And you can see it uh, rising again over and over at various, in various events of his life. Mm-hmm. 
But the Lord used uh, that time at the deacon's home. He's walking in a garden with Susie, and he says, what, what's wrong with me? Why have I been acting like this? And he was meditating on Philippians 2, verse 9, and following the uh, descent and ascent of Christ, and he found encouragement. Two weeks later, he's back at his church at the New Park Street Chapel preaching, and he, he also, in that letter to his mom, says something to the effect that no man has ever been so close to the fires of insanity and, and have come out unscathed. Spurgeon certainly overestimated his healing. Uh, he is unable to fully preach as he wants at the church. He does get through uh, some sort of sermon that evening. But about three weeks later, he's back at the music hall again, which uh, had to be traumatic for him. Mm-hmm. Only they moved the services to the morning instead of the evening. But it was prayer, uh, Bible reading, his wife reading poetry to him, encouraging him, uh, that helped sustain him through those hard times. But his depression deepened uh, after that. Uh, there's, there's an occasion where he's, he's with his wife. They're traveling across the Alps in the early years of their marriage, and a, uh, a donkey, a pack mule, uh, slips. And Spurgeon gets off of his, uh, out of the carriage, and he sits down and, and can't be moved. He's paralyzed. He, he can't uh, correspond. And Susie believed then that that was a result. Those kind of situations were a result of the music hall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A real instance of what we would call today PTSD. That's right. Uh, in a way that I, I can only imagine the, the mental anguish that, uh, that he had to, to feel mm-hmm. in that. And if there was anything, because by all accounts, too, he worked to try to calm everyone down and mm-hmm. to bring it down. And um, one one thinks that had there been you know modern sound amplification and other kinds of things that also might have been able to help right. in that environment. Obviously, not a, not available at those times. It was right. just his voice. Yeah, Doctor Rhodes mentioned him meditating on Philippians two. I, I really appreciate what he says there. You know, it's in the, in the depths of his discouragement. You know, even depression. It's the thought of Christ exalted on the throne, and, mm. and that that sort of lifts him out of that darkness, you know, that regardless of what happens to him, Christ's kingdom can't be shaken, right? And, and uh, you know, he was being torn apart in the press. Uh, people were uh, blasting him from all corners. Uh, but he, in spite of what happened to him, Christ still would be exalted. Uh, and, and that he found encouragement in the midst of his darkness. And I think as preachers, you know, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our bad decisions, uh, and, you know, uh, suffering that happens in our lives, um, we ought to find comfort in Christ, mm-hmm. right? In, in his uh, unchangeable victory uh, and, and his ultimate victory, uh, even through our failures and discouragements. So, Practically, do we have evidences of things that Spurgeon would have done along with his team to mitigate future actions like this? Mm. Uh, did they increase any level of security or is mm. uh, they go back to the same music hall and it's, there's gotta be this lingering thought. How do we keep this type of thing from happening again? Yeah. Well, th- as Dr. Rhodes mentioned, they switched uh, now their meetings from the evening at the, at the music hall to the mornings. Uh, and the reason for that, you know, in the evenings, the the type of people that would have turned out for an evening service for evening service would have been kind of of a lower class, mm-hmm. uh, and so having it in the morning they thought would be safer, you know, for such a large crowd. Uh, also, we have records uh, 
for from deacons' meetings uh, as they prepare for the opening of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in 1861, they are thinking a lot more about security, about entrance and exit. Uh, they've they're paying for uniformed uh, sol- uh, policemen to stand at the doors. So there are different kind of new measures put in place uh, for the safety of the people who are attending the services. Were there other things that Spurgeon, in his reflections over the years, um, that we just we just say there's no way to escape the shadow of this as you as you read this event or you read this sermon or you read these things. This is this is yet another instance of him processing the example of uh, of even being on on holiday and seeing the donkey slip. That that's a that's a great example of that. Do, do we see more of that even in his writing? Uh, well, the question is, how did he continue to cope with that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that his wife did, and I think it's a great lesson for all of us. Uh, I know that's the way I feel about my wife. I'm just sort of lost without her in many ways and without her encouragement and ministry. Uh, I don't know (laughs) how I would go forward. One of the things that she did was she would, uh, she was big on, uh, framing Bible verses Mm. and putting them in sight of Spurgeon. Mm. So he'd wake up, he'd, he'd see this Bible verse on the wall or whatnot. And so it really was a scripture reading and prayer. And then on Sunday evenings, he would be just distraught at times. He would, like many pastors, they've emptied their hearts out. He feels uh, he was inadequate at times. He was colder than he wanted to be. He would start weeping. And she would read uh, George Herbert to him. Mm. And uh, he'd find comfort in that. But I think it was just God's ordinary means of grace that he looked to time and again. He said, Christ is the sun. He's the center. Everything revolves around that. And, you know, you can't really read a paragraph of Spurgeon without finding something about the beauty and the glory and the wonder of Christ. And mm. that's where he looked. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was going to preach that night on Proverbs three thirty three, The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but he blesses the, the habitation of the just. Um, he would never preach on that text again. Mm. Um, and in future conversations, there's, there's one recorded conversation with a friend who Spurgeon is talking with him, and, and that friend mentions, oh, I'm going to be preaching on Proverbs 3.33 later this week, and, and Spurgeon has to take a step back because that immediately brings to mind uh, this event. Wow. That's... That's heavy to think through, even uh, how that that shaped his his understanding, um, his understanding there. Dr. McMullen, in um, kind of some of your work with uh, broader figures uh, in the in the 19th century in in England, are there other individuals who are even writing or referencing this uh, type of uh, of event in the 19th century? Kind of even reflecting on what Spurgeon went through or standing up for him or other things that, that you've encountered and worked with? Not specifically uh, on this particular episode. <clears throat> what what um, I've done is to uh, look at some of the, the newspaper reports, how they kind of portrayed what took place. And uh, I think, you know, was said earlier that the newspaper's uh, use this as one means of uh, continuing their attacks on Spurgeon. Uh, the Daily Telegraph, which still exists today, uh, they wrote an article um, where they said 
uh, when the mangled corpses had been carried away from the unhallowed and disgraceful scene, when husbands were seeking their wives and children, their mothers, in extreme agony and despair, the chink of the money as it fell into the collection boxes grated harshly, miserably, on the ears of those who we sincerely hope have by this time conceived for Mr. Spurgeon and his rantings the profoundest contempt. Mm, wow. And so they were simply not above you know, using this horrific event as an opportunity you know, to undermine his incredible ministry, really. And, and not just the preaching of the gospel, which you understand a secular media may well be against, but the seeking of all the good that was being done amongst the people in London and clearly much further out. Um, Susanna herself wrote this. She said, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. And of course, as I've thought about this, surely what must have troubled him is that, you know, he was living with, with the death and, and with the serious injury of so many that had happened primarily uh, because of his own popularity. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, it was done out of, of mischief and, and whatever else, but the people wouldn't have been there in such numbers had they not been attracted by his popularity. So that must have been a difficult thing as well, I think. Um, he even said, you know, he wrote later that um, he, he had a, a mysterious premonition of some great trial shortly mm. to befall me. And and he said that he had that premonition on the night before. Yeah, Drummond talks about that a little bit in his biography. That there's this at least sense of foreboding that uh, that Spurgeon has the, the night before that that something uh, is going on. And I, I I can only imagine how that played in his mind too. Is there something should have been done differently, or or other other pieces like that to address? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, all of us uh, in any type of life setting, we are going to deal with difficulties, hopefully none to the level and extent that Spurgeon experienced that particular night. However, it's through those trials uh, that we see the grace of God work his, himself through our life and in the spirit of God in a, in a very powerful way. In our closing here uh, of this discussion, um, on June 23rd in 1861, Spurgeon preached uh, a message entitled Fire, 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 right? Echoing, I think, back to this event. Um, His text was Isaiah 43, 2. This is a a quote from Spurgeon's sermon there uh, stating this, From your first trouble till the last enemy shall be destroyed, you shall not lose a fraction, jot or tittle, by anything or everything which God in his providence or the world in its fury of Satan and his craftiness shall ever be able to lay upon you. Upon you not the smell of fire shall have passed. You shall not be burned, neither shall your hosen nor your hats, but like the men that you read of in Daniel, you shall be wholly preserved intact from the flame. Fitting closing words there. And with that, uh, listener, we thank you for joining us for this episode of This Week 
in church history, and we will see you next week.